porch folks, porch folk. And my old church was called Dolores Park Church. Um, uh, we used to call them DP Sears. So what do I call you guys? Uh, porchers? No, that's not right. Porchies? No, that's not right either. Anyway, we'll figure it out. But anyway, hey, porch folk. Um, so you might have noticed that on uh, the Sunday gatherings here online, we've changed the format a little bit and we don't have people it's just less recording for everybody to do and so we we cut out the announcements at the beginning and um just put the slides and the um you know some music and stuff since we were doing the same announcements basically every week um but when there is a new announcement or something we want to talk about i'm just going to do it here at the beginning of the sermon um so i just wanted to give an update about the grant uh fundraising that we're doing um so you know we got the grant again um just like we did last year it's a thirty thousand dollar grant and they're going to match four to one about there i'm rounding numbers here but they're going to match um 24 grand if we raise six so it's a four to one matching grant. So we have about a month left, a little bit less than a month left to raise. Um, we have to, we're at just over $1,500, I think, 16 I don't know. I don't remember the exact number, but we've got to raise about $4,500 more. Um, so I'd just encourage you, if you would like to give to that, The all the info is there on the website. Um, and uh, if you know somebody that would like to give or you want to help us fundraise and reach out to your friends and family and just say, hey, I'm part of this church plant. Here's what we're doing and here's what's going on. Um, we'd really appreciate that. If you have any questions about the grant, feel free to reach out to me or Kayla. Um, we'd be happy to answer um, any questions that you have. All right, now let's get into the good stuff, right? The juicy stuff, the Bible, right? The scriptures. And we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. Um, so if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. And uh, if you're following along in the app, you can use the the version link um, that's there on the website. Um, so I want to start by talking about um, this idea of... Um, uh, in, that we that we use in philosophy, we use it in theology. And philosophy and theology, a ton of what happens when you study philosophy, a ton of what happens when you study theology is people, theologians and philosophers, are um, trying to define something. So they're trying to come up with a good definition for something. So what is justification, right? Or um, what is beauty in philosophy? And a lot of philosophy, a lot of theology, is just these guys arguing about definitions, right? Arguing about what does this mean? What does that mean? Try Because when we can define something, it means we can really understand it uh, to a certain degree. And one of the best things you can do when you're trying to come up with a definition, when you're trying to really uh, get into the, the nitty gritty and understand a concept or an idea is to, one of the practices is to not just define the thing, but try to ask yourself, well, what's the opposite of that thing? And when you can figure out what's the opposite of that thing, it helps you define what you really think about the thing, right? So uh, what is hot? You you talk about, you know, cold as the opposite or that. Um, one in philosophy that they talk about is, well, what's the opposite of love? Is it hate? Is love on one side and hate on the other? Or is love on one side and just indifference um, is on the other? Um, there was a, a, a Danish philosopher named uh, Soren Kierkegaard uh, from the 19th century. And uh, he talked a lot about um, you know, a lot of philosophy of uh, religion and philosophy of the Christian faith. And he made this brilliant observation that's kind of stuck with me for a while. He said that most um, religious activity and most people who, whether they're, you know, religious or not, they see um, sin and virtue as polar opposites, right? So sin and moral right behavior are the opposite of each other. And he said... Or, uh, well, so on one side, right? We have sin, we have bad behavior, we have 
you know, doing something that's wrong, however doing something wrong is defined, and that's in philosophy, that's a big thing, right? How do we define what's right and wrong? And then on the other side of that, we have doing what's right. And however we define that too, right, is also a big thing. But Kierkegaard came along and he said this, and this was really interesting, that Christianity is set apart from other religious activity, from other uh, world religions and other systems of morality in that uh, the Christian faith comes along and says, no, 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 it's not that sin and virtue are polar opposites, but the polar opposites here are sin and faith, right? Faith is trusting in God, resting in God, putting your whole life uh, in his hands. Sin is trusting in yourself and being your own Lord, right? And so it's not about the behavior, but the attitude. Um, today, we're going to meet two characters as we read through the story um, in Luke chapter 7. And from a, a non-gospel religious perspective, one of these people is really good, right? One of them is the virtuous, and one is the sinner. One is moral, and one is not. And so if you look at it, if you look at this story, or just if you look at these two characters from that perspective of uh, religious activity that basically everybody uh, else buys into. We have one good person and we have one bad person. But from the eyes of Jesus through through a gospel lens, right, what Kierkegaard would say about this story is, no, 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 what we actually have is one person of faith and uh, one person who has no faith, right? Uh, one of these people will enter the kingdom of God and one of them will not. Now, um, we're going to read the story today of the woman who anoints, I don't know how familiar you are with the gospels, but if you are, you you know the story, the woman anoints um, Jesus's hair, uh, sorry, Jesus's feet wiped with her tears and wipes his feet with her hair. We'll read all this in a second. Now, um, I'm not going to get into all this scholarship here, but this is very similar to another incident, but it's actually separate, two separate incidents, right? So um, there's another incident that's very, very similar to this that happens in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. And then we have this one here that happens in the Gospel of Luke. And people ask, are they the same? Are they different? Um, it's, I think they're different. Most scholars believe they're different. Um, that incident, the other one that we're not going to read, took place um, with Mary of Bethany, right? Um, Martha and Lazarus's sister. Um, this story is an unnamed woman. That story happens in the southern part of Israel. This story happens in the northern part of Israel. That story was near the end of Jesus's ministry, and the whole focus is on anointing Jesus for his burial. This story is really towards the beginning of Jesus's ministry um, on his tour through Galilee. So if you're reading this and you're wondering why we're not talking about that other one, it's because they're actually two very similar but two separate incidents. All right, so let's take a look. Let's go through the text here. Um, we're going to start in verse, uh, where am I? Uh, chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So we've talked about the Pharisees before. Um, the Pharisees were this group of religious people that popped up after the exile. So at the time of the exile, God said, you guys have been so faithless that I'm going to send you to Babylon. Basically, I'm going to give the whole nation of Israel a very severe time out. And so to make sure that this never happens again, these Pharisees popped up and they were just like, we're not just going to um, follow the rules. We're going to super follow the rules, right? We're going to create space around the rules so you can't even get close to breaking the rules. Now, when we read about the Pharisees in the gospel, they're usually portrayed in a negative light. Not always, but usually. But then when we jump to the book of Acts, they're usually portrayed in a good light. And so we don't want to just automatically assume that every Pharisee we meet is like the worst person in the whole world. Um, they're, a lot of them had very 
problematic theology and a lot of stuff, but a lot of them also have probably had were decent people with good hearts who were trying to follow the Lord, right? So we don't want to just jump to conclusions. As soon as we see Pharisee, we think bad guy. Um, now, why did this Pharisee, though, invite Jesus to dinner? Well, there's a couple of options here. Maybe he was a genuine seeker. Maybe he was somebody who heard Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Plain. Maybe he was at the, at the town of Nain when Jesus raised the widow, uh, the widow's son from the dead. And he thought, man, I got to hear this guy teach. We don't know. Maybe he was genuine. That's one option. The second option, maybe he was like a celebrity collector, you know? Um, I don't know if you've uh, met a famous person or if you've had somebody tell you about meeting a famous person. But you know that that sense of like, oh, I met a famous person. I have to tell somebody about this, right? I just almost, I get validation from the fact, you know, that um, I bumped into Simon Cowell or I haven't ever met him. I just picked the first celebrity I could think of. But you know what I mean, right? Maybe he's one of these kind of people who just has to, you know, snap that Instagram pic with whoever it is at the airport while they're just trying to wait for their flight. Um, maybe that's what he's doing. Um, another option, though, is we said a lot of times in the Gospels, the Pharisees are portrayed as the bad guys. And um, if you just jump back to uh, chapter 6, verse 7, you can see that, right? That they're seeking to accuse Jesus. They're seeking to find something wrong with Jesus so that they can bring him up on charges. That's probably what's going on here, and we'll see why um, in a minute. So this guy, he invites Jesus, this traveling famous rabbi who's bringing people back from the dead. He invites him over for dinner. Now, what these dinners were like, this was um, this was a feast. It wasn't just, hey, can you come over for dinner, and we'll have some, uh, you know, we'll have like a nice chicken and potatoes, and it'll just be the four of us. And, you know, that's not what was going on here. This was a big deal. And um, if this Pharisee had money, which it seems like he did, uh, he would have had a house with some sort of a courtyard, and the dinner probably would have happened in that courtyard. This would have been more like a barbecue than just like a, a dinner party where you all sit down in the dining room. And um, there would be a table in the middle of the courtyard, and what would happen is everybody would lean into the table, and they would put their feet kind of, they would almost lean on their sides, and their feet would be away from the table because... Um, you know, feet are disgusting and you don't want your feet anywhere near the food. Now, these events would also be semi-public. So the people who are invited would sit at the table. But other people from town would come and they would hang out in the courtyard and they would get leftovers and they would kind of hear the conversation and um, they would be able to listen to the rabbi or the important discussion, right? And so... Um, this is the dinner that Jesus is at. So now we've met our first character, right? Um, his name's Simon the Pharisee. Uh, next, we're going to see verse 37. We're going to read our second character, our second main character of the story. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster uh, flask of ointment. So the next character that we meet is this woman of the city who's called a sinner. Now, almost all scholars uniformly agree that this woman was probably a prostitute. That's a euphemism, right? A woman of the city. Um, it doesn't specifically say this woman was a prostitute. Whatever her sin was, um, it was a public sin, right? This was not some sort of a private sin. This was something that everybody in the town knew, oh, that's that's her sin. This They defined her by whatever it was that she was doing. Now, um, it, when we call her a sinner, when the scripture calls her a sinner, um, it's not that the Pharisee wasn't a sinner, as we'll see in a minute. Um, it's just that it, Luke is kind of taking the, the cue from this culture, right? The, everybody at this dinner thought of her as, okay, that woman, 
she's the one who's the center. And she shows up at the dinner. So like it was public. So she came into the courtyard. She was hanging out and talking to people. She brought an alabaster jar. I'll show you a little picture here somewhere uh, over here. There'll be a picture. Um, and these, these alabaster jars of ointment or perfume would be worn around the neck. And this is one of the reasons a lot of people think that she was some sort of a prostitute was because um, this was one of the tools of the trade, right? The prostitutes, they wanted to smell good. It was probably very expensive. Um, and, you know, it probably did smell very good. Uh, it was a, uh, even though it was a sealed, um, mostly sealed jar. So it was one of the kind of thing you'd break the top off. So you could really only open it once. Um, now let's see what happens. So this woman shows up, she brings this, she has this necklace probably with this alabaster jar and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So now she, so there, here's the, the scene. Uh, there's the table in the middle. Everybody's got their, their, their head and shoulders, everything leaning into the table and their feet are kind of behind them. Right. And, uh, they're kind of, they're laying out. And so she comes up behind Jesus and while she's there, she has this emotional outburst and she starts to cry. She starts to weep and she can't help it. Now, why is she weeping? Um, almost everybody agrees she's weeping because she loves Jesus. At some point, this woman probably had heard Jesus teach about the kingdom. Maybe she had been healed by Jesus. Um, she'd heard about outsiders coming in. She'd um, seen people talk about the lepers or these different people that Jesus is bringing into the kingdom. And at some point, she realized that the good news of the gospel, that somebody like her that everybody in this culture said you're an outsider and you can't be part of the in crowd. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, no. These are the kind of people that I'm bringing into the kingdom of God. And she realizes that her sinful life is not the way to go. And she repents and her life is transformed. And so she shows up because she wants to see Jesus again. So this probably is not her first time meeting Jesus. Maybe her and Jesus even had some sort of a fireside chat like the woman at the well. We don't know. The, the details aren't in there, but we can imagine, right? So she shows up to see Jesus again. And as soon as she sees him, she comes up behind him and she wants to talk to him or whatever it is she wants to do, um, anoint his feet with this oil. And as soon as she sees Jesus, she starts to cry. And Jesus is leaning forward and he might not even notice it at first. It's probably a loud party. And she realizes this, this outburst of love and emotion. And she's just so thankful for Christ. Um, she, she's, she's welling up in tears and she realizes the tears are uh, getting his feet all wet. She's, she's literally crying on his feet as he's leaning forward. And so she thinks, okay, I'll, I know what I'll do. I don't have a towel or whatever, but I have this long hair. I'm going to take my hair down and I'm going to wipe his feet up with the hair. This was, uh, it doesn't really seem to matter to us in our culture, but in this culture, um, a woman letting her hair down in public was a big no-no. And um, you can almost think of like um, in Muslim cultures where the women have their whole head covered, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it wasn't quite that extreme, but it, that's very similar, right? You would not show your hair like that in public to the point where some rabbi said that if a, if a wife let her hair down in public, it was uh, grounds for her husband to divorce her. That's how scandalous this was. So this woman lets her hair down. She probably had long hair and she starts wiping up Jesus's uh, feet um, with her hair. And <clears throat> she starts kissing. Wait, is that what it says here? Um, and she uh, and she kissed his feet and she anointed them with oil, right? F so feet are gross. Let's be real. I don't like feet. I don't like, like nobody, they're disgusting, right? And uh, 
Feet were even more disgusting back then because everybody wore sandals, right? Imagine going into a hippie commune and looking at everybody's nasty feet. This is kind of what this is like, right? Everybody wore sandals. They didn't shower every day. And so she comes up now and she anoints his feet with ointment. Um, so this ointment, this perfume, basically she's cleaning his feet is what this stuff is for. Um, and putting a nice smelling lotion on it. So you walk around all day, your feet get nasty. You're supposed to wash them with water. And then you're supposed to put, they probably were all dry and cracked. And, um, you know, it was painful, right, to wear sandals all day. And so this ointment was like a lotion that would help, you know, uh, moisturize your skin, that sort of thing. So this was like a big deal. This was a, it was a very nice thing for her to do, right, for Jesus. And so she puts the smelling lotion on, um, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, okay, so here we go. Everybody's watching what this woman is doing. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him uh, saw that saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would known, um, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So now we see the attitude of this Pharisee. Do you see what he's doing? He's testing Jesus. He's placing himself above everybody in the room. He's testing Jesus to see if he's a real prophet, and in his mind, the verdict is in. Um, if, if he really knew, right, prophets know things that everybody else doesn't, you know, they know things we don't. That's the idea. They hear from God, they have this special revelation, and uh, they speak for God. And if he really is a prophet like he claims to be, he would know more than us, not less than us. So he's saying um, he would never let this woman touch him if he knew who she was. So clearly he doesn't know who she is, which means clearly he's not a prophet. Um, in Greek, the word that the Pharisee uses here too is um, not the word just like for touch, but the word for like um, like a sensual, intimate touch. Like this word could almost be like a sexual touch. He sees this woman's worship of the Lord and he sees it as a sexual advance. Do you see the posture of his heart? I'm up here and I'm making judgments to see if everybody else in this room can get up to my level, right? She's not. She's clearly the sinner. Jesus obviously isn't making the cut either because he's letting this sinner touch him and anoint his um, his feet with oil and do all this stuff. So verse, let's keep going, verse um, uh, 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus comes now to the Pharisee, knows what he's thinking in his heart. And Jesus says to him, Simon, he calls him by his name. I have something to say to you. Now, Jesus is about to drop the hammer. This is, there's zero chance that, you know what, you're right. I didn't know she was a prostitute. I never should have. You know, I never should have let her touch. That's not, no. When Jesus, you can almost hear his tone in these words. I have something to say to you, right? This is like almost like an angry father talking to the kid, you know, just like, sit down, we got to talk. Okay, so then he tells him this parable. So um, he tells him the parable of the, the two debtors. Uh, now, how debt worked in the ancient world is different than how debt works now. So in the ancient world, when you took out a loan or somebody loaned you money and you, you were in debt to somebody, if you could not pay them back, there was no bankruptcy. That was not a thing. Um, in our culture, maybe you lose your business, maybe you lose your house or your your car or whatever it is. They come foreclose and steal, take all your guitars. Um, <clears throat> 
that's not what happened. Here, in this culture, they would take you and they would throw you into what's called debtor's prison, where it basically would then be impossible for you to pay the debt back. Um, then your family would be taken and sold as slaves, and the proceeds from that would go to pay towards your debt. And uh, if still you couldn't pay the debt, then you would just rot away in debtor's prison. Now, so this is serious, right? These two people owe this debt. A denarii was about a day's wage. So one of these people, so these are large, um, you know, these are large debts, right? One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So one owed more than a year's salary and one owed a little bit less than two months, two months salary. But these are, both of these are big debts, but one is considerably, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, one is considerably larger than the other, right? One owes a ton more than the other one. Now, <clears throat> Interpreting parables. As we're interpreting parables, if you remember from the last time we talked about parables, what we have to do is we have to find points of reference um, in the parable and then ask ourselves, what is that point of reference representing? So there's the debtor uh, who owed 50 in the parable. That's going to be Simon, right? He he thinks he owes, you know, he owes less, right? He owes 50. Um, the, the 500, the debtor who owes 500, that's the sinful woman. And then the question now that Jesus asks out of these two, oh, and then who is it that's forgiving the debt, right? Well, the obvious answer is uh, that's the Lord forgiving sin, right? So the question then is after this is all over, both of these people have been forgiven. Who will love, who will love the Lord more? And the, uh, the answer is obvious, right? Simon says it. Well, I guess the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. So what Jesus is doing here is he's explaining to Simon why this woman is acting the way that she is. He's explaining to Simon why she just shows up at this barbecue and starts crying at his feet. She has this outpouring of love and emotion and she just can't hold it in because she has been forgiven this humongous debt and she knows it. Now, here's a sort of a sidebar question. Um, as, I, as I write these sermons, one of the things I do is I go through and I write what questions might pop up. Um, and one of the questions is, as you read this, then maybe you, you thought this, well, should we try to sin more? so that we'll love Jesus more, right? I want to love Jesus more. And the more I'm forgiven, it says the more I'll love him. So maybe I'll go sin more, be forgiven, and then my love for him will be greater. And that's actually a good question. It seems kind of silly, but it, it it's a logical question. Now, what I think that's doing, though, is it's pushing the parable too far. Remember, in the parable, what we do, interpreting, we find points of reference, and we stick to those, and we don't press this, right? These parables are not all-encompassing theological topics. They're They're teaching sort of one specific thing. And Jesus is, um, uh, he's saying to Simon, look, you're comparing her to yourself. And so let's do this. Now, this is why she loves me more, because you don't think you've been forgiven a lot. She knows that she has. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah. So the other thing too is, um, even if we push this too far, there's the rest of the scripture. And what the rest of the scripture says is we, being forgiven is not the only blessing that God gives us. We have lots of other blessings that cause us to love him. And so we could even flip forward to Romans. In Romans 6, it says, it specifically answers this question because the gospel that Paul was teaching, that that we don't do anything to get saved, right? All this stuff that we do in our walk with God and all this stuff that we do to try to please him uh, happens as an overflow of our love for him, not the reason that he loves us, right? We're not earning our salvation. And people say, well, why would anybody do that then, right? And so Paul answering that question says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Right? He's answering this very question, right? Is Should we just keep sinning so that there's more grace out there? Because that's what you're saying, Paul. 
as they're misconstruing the gospel, right? He's answering their objections. And his answer is this, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And so what Paul is saying is sin sucks, right? It's oppressive. It enslaves us. And being freed from it causes us to love the Lord and to forsake sin. So like I said, it's not the only reason that we love Christ. There's other reasons. Imagine being somebody who genuinely did not live, I mean, lived a sinful life, but there's a lot of sins that that person was held away from because they grew up in a good Christian home and they were discipled by their parents and they understood the gospel from a young age. That's another reason to love the Lord, right? So um, there's a lot of different reasons that we can love the Lord, right? Anyway, so back to, so that's just sort of a quick objection. Back to the text now. Jesus is explaining um, how this woman now, why this woman is acting the way she is and this outpouring of emotion. And he's saying it's because she's been forgiven this huge debt and she genuinely understands that. And so uh, verse 44, um, Jesus continues, you know, or the story continues. Then turning towards the woman, uh, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she is wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So this culture that they're in was a culture of hospitality. And we don't get this quite in the West as much, um, but this was, hospitality was huge, right? And you could shame uh, bring, you know, dishonor to your whole family by not being a hospitable person. And so there were common courtesies in the practice of hosp- hospitality that Simon the Pharisee completely ignored when Jesus came into his home. And Jesus, now in front of everybody, calls him out on that shame. So like I said, feet were nasty, you know, were our nasty, right? And so walking around in sandals and being gross, one of the things when you came into somebody's home right? They either had a servant or somebody come wash your feet, or they gave you a bowl of water to wash your own feet, right? You could clean your feet off before you came into somebody's home. Uh, The second thing was there was this thing, um, they called it the kiss of peace. So you would give a kiss kind of like they do in Europe on the cheek, which was just the customary greeting. Um, So in our culture, right, we would maybe give somebody a hug or a handshake or whatever. Um, Imagine coming into somebody's house and they open the door and they say, oh, hey, and they just turn around and walk away. They don't stand there. They don't talk to you. They don't shake your hand. They don't give you a hug. It'd be rude. And then the third thing is um, they would anoint you with olive oil. So uh, the whole idea of anointing is weird to us. We don't do this at all. Um, But basically the closest thing is like, you know, people's faces were dirty and anointing was kind of like the, the olive oil was a watered down olive oil that was basically like a lotion and it would clean, you would clean your face and then you would wash your face. And so why did Simon ignore these customs? When Jesus came into his house, what's going on here? This is why a lot of the scholars believe that Simon wasn't genuinely seeking Jesus and seeking after the gospel, but he was looking for someone, for some way um, to accuse Jesus and bring him up on some sort of theological charges, right? Ignoring these customs was almost unheard of in this day. Uh, There are very few examples of something like this. And so for whatever reason, though, he did. He completely ignored these customs, but each of them, ignored by Simon then was fulfilled by the woman that Simon thought was way beneath him. And she's acting more uh, uh, culturally appropriate than he is, is kind of what Jesus is saying. She cleaned his feet, right, when Simon did it, but she did it with her tears and then wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet, uh, you know, um, as Simon completely ignored the kiss of peace. Simon didn't even give cheap olive oil but she gave expensive perfume, 
right? So Jesus now is really throwing down the gauntlet here with this Pharisee um, in comparing, he's comparing Simon to the woman that Simon thinks he's up here and that she's down here. And Jesus is saying, even from your own point of view, you shouldn't think that, right? Because she's doing the things that you failed to do. But then there's even more going on. And then Jesus really drives it home in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So here's a question. It says here, um, it says, uh, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. There's a key word here. It says, for she loved much. Now, does she love Jesus because her sins are forgiven? Or are her sins forgiven because she loved Jesus? Do you see that? Which one comes first, the love or the forgiveness? Now, in the ESV, one of the things I like about the ESV is it it's not perfect. I mean, every translation is imperfect and done by humans, right? Um, but what I like about the ESV is as much as one of the things they tried to do was in a lot of these issues, stay neutral and let pastors and Bible teachers expound on it. So this is a good translation in that it just sort of says what the Greek says. For, you know, um, uh, they're forgiven for she loved much, right? It just keeps it like that. Now, that word for can mean two things, the way it can be translated. Um, it can mean like a cause, right? So translated as for the, as the cause of something. So something happened for something else happened, right? Like because something else happened. Or it can be, I'm getting a little technical here, but the word that word can also be used um, in sort of an evidentiary sense, right? As a statement. Something happened for I saw it with my own eyes. This is why we know it happened because I witnessed it, right? So to interpret this word, what we need to do is look at the context of the passage. Now, why are this is this woman's sins forgiven? Did she love Jesus and then receive forgiveness? Or did she receive forgiveness and then that caused her to love Jesus, right? What is it that led... What came first? What's the order? Well, look at the or order of the parable. That's how we can tell. If you look at the order of the parable, what happens? There's just two debtors. Do they love the person they owe money to? No, right? And then they're forgiven. And then Jesus asks the question, after the forgiveness of the debt, which one is going to then love the debtor more? Do you see that? And so what Jesus is saying is, um, look in that order, right? She's forgiven, love follows. And that's what's going on here. Her love is an overflow of her gratitude for her forgiveness. The NIV, which I actually have a bunch of NIVs up here. Let's see. You know, there's that one. Uh, this whole NIV. Can you see my Bibles? Anyway, NIV readers set, right? Um, the NIV, it's not my favorite translation, but I do use it a lot. You know, I don't know. It's a good translation. Um, the reason it's not my favorite, though, to study is because sometimes they add notes, like the, the translators almost interpret the phrase for you instead of sort of try to leave it neutral. Um, this is one of those places that they do it. But I think they hit the nail on the head with the translation, right? So I agree with their sort of adding on. This is what it says. It says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. This is what it says, as her great love has shown, right? Her sins are forgiven because, and we can see that because of her great love, right? Um, John Piper talked about this. He did a whole thing about this, just this little section explaining this. And he says, when Jesus cancels the debt of sin, it always awakens a love for God within us. 
And so that's what's going on here, right? That's what we see with this woman. Her great love is evidenced by her emotional outburst as she tries to sneak up on Jesus and anoint his feet. She just couldn't keep it in. That's the evidence that the weight of sin has been lifted off of her shoulders. She has been forgiven and she knows it. And then Jesus now turns and he... um uh, reassures her that that really is what's going on. Your sins have already been forgiven, basically, is what he says. And then verse 49. Now, how do you think that sat with the people at the party, the Pharisees and the others? You've got to assume there were more than one Pharisee here, right? Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Right? Who is this? That's their question. Who does this guy think he is? That is a key question that's asked all throughout the book of Luke and the book of Acts, right? This two volume set. And that's why we're reading this book. We're trying to answer this question. Who is this guy? Right? And Luke doesn't answer the question here right away. He leaves it kind of open-ended. Who is this guy? Can Jesus really forgive sins? Well, you got to keep reading the book of Luke and the book of Acts to find out how that happens. But then there's a key. There is a hint right here in the next verse, though. And he said to the woman in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So he says now that the reason that she's been forgiven is because she's placed her faith in me. Faith is not, and we were talking about this, um, you know, the other day on the Zoom call, right? Faith is not a belief in an in intellectual truth, right? Faith is resting your life in the arms of the king who forgives, that's what it is, resting your whole life, letting him be the one who holds you. And that faith, when when you have that faith and you're forgiven, the next thing that follows is peace, right? Peace always follows grace and faith and forgiveness, right? There's this, this sense of peace in our lives. Um, let me give you like a story here, like illustration. Um, you know, pastors, we have what's called a ministry license or ordination license. So I'm a licensed pastor, which means, you know, a couple things. I can do weddings, that sort of stuff, right? But one of the things it means is the IRS treats us different than everybody else. I'm not going to get into how that all works. We pay taxes on part of our income and different taxes on other parts of our income, and it gets pretty complicated. And I'm glad somebody else knows how that all works for me. But anyway, um, the IRS, when I sent in my stuff, was it last year or the year before? They didn't believe me that I was a real pastor. And so they flagged my ministry license. And this was going to, if they don't really believe I'm a pastor, that's going to cost me a ton of extra money in taxes the way that my taxes are my taxes work. And it was going to be this huge headache. Now, my brother, who's uh, like a CPA firm or whatever, does, um, they do our, uh, you know, the company does all of our church's books and taxes and that sort of stuff, right? And they have a bunch of guys that work on it. And so everything's up and on the up and up, right? Because you don't want me doing all that stuff because I'm an idiot. Um, so he said to me, look, don't worry about it. Um, I'll I'll take care of it when it happened, he's like, you can, it'll take you forever to do it. But he's like, I, this is what we do. We deal with the IRS. I'll write the letters. I'll talk to the IRS people. You just forget it happened. I'll figure it out. And as soon as he said that, that gave me a sense of peace because now I knew I'm not the one who has to worry about this. It's still a problem and it has to get fixed, but the details of how it's going to get fixed, it's not up to me. Ben's going to take care of it. And he did. He wrote the IRS a letter and everything got figured out and I didn't really sweat it anymore. That's how the gospel works. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you and you have this problem and you're trying to figure it out and I'm just going to do it for you. I'm going to lift that weight off of your shoulders. Now, because of that, go in peace. You, have, you don't have to worry about the penalty for sin anymore. You don't have to worry about the punishment and the alienation from God. And so this woman leaves with this real sense of peace, this real sense of being forgiven. The Pharisee, Simon, doesn't. This is not what he receives. 
And so let's end this, uh, this teaching by looking at these two characters. We have Simon the Pharisee, and we have the unnamed, sinful, probably prostitute woman. What did her faith have that his did not? Well, I'll give you a couple of things. The first, authentic faith, right? Her faith begins with the real view of the depth of one's own sin. So they both owed a debt that they couldn't pay. Do you see that? So even if, and Jesus was kind of almost telling that parable from Simon's point of view. He wasn't actually saying this woman has more sin. Simon has a lot of sin too. He just didn't think he did. But he's like, even from your perspective, Simon, let's, let's talk about this, right? You both owed a debt that you couldn't pay though. Just because her debt was more, it doesn't really matter, right? It neither You're both in the same place in that you owe money you can't pay and you're heading to debtor's prison. He thought he was better than her. He placed himself above her, but he couldn't pay his debt either. Imagine two people, right? Imagine, you know, just not two strangers. One of them dies from a quick gunshot to the back of the head, like in mobster movies. And one is mauled to death by a dog in a slow and painful death. Let's say Benry does it. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's say mauled to death by a dog. At the end of the day, which one of them is more dead? All right? One had a more painful death, but they're both dead. You walk up and you shake each of them and you say, hey, wake up. Neither of them are going to stand up unless you're Jesus or Elijah or Peter later in the book of Acts, right? Simon's problem is in, in his twisted mind, he thought he was less dead because his sins were more socially acceptable than her sins. Pride, he was looking at pride and selfishness and saying that's less sinful than some sort of public sexual sin. And Jesus comes along and says, neither of you guys can pay your debts. And so the, let me ask you this question. What sins in your life do you try to justify as okay? See, that's one of the things the devil does. It's one of his tricks, right? Is he gets in our head and he says, well, that other person's pretty bad. You're bad, but you're not as bad as that person. And so we try to justify the sins that we have in our own lives. And we say, you know what? That's okay. I'm not, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Do you have a realistic view of the depth of your sin? That's what this woman had. She knew she was a sinner, right? When, when they say, oh, she's a sinner. Yeah, well, she was. So was Simon, but she was too. And she knew the depth of her sin. The second idea is this. Authentic faith. This woman's faith. The real faith. Comes to Jesus with with. Uh, the whole self. She came to Jesus with her whole self. Simon's faith was intellectual. Do you see that? He was trying to figure out asking questions and doing this sort of stuff. And he was, he was evaluating Jesus and she was giving herself to Jesus. Uh, do you see how that happened in the story, right? He was, he was, it was almost like he was interviewing Jesus for a job. He was placing Jesus below him. And if you meet my conditions, Jesus, I'll consider this. Um, Tim Keller, uh, in his sermon on this passage, he said this, Commitment is putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. No vulnerability, no commitment. No commitment, no relationship. That's the difference. That's what the woman was doing. She was completely vulnerable with him. She laid it all out in front of Jesus. She gave him her whole life. American Christians, we love to give Jesus our minds and then keep everything else for ourselves, which is basically what this Pharisee was doing. I'll give God my mind, you know, but the rest of this is going to, I'm going to be the Lord of the rest. And we, uh, we, we love to have Jesus, right. As, as, um, almost like compartmentalized, right. So that we can keep the illusion of control in our life. Jesus 
isn't just after your head, right? He wants to be the Lord of your entire life. He wants to be the Lord of your whole life. And a real understanding of the depth of your sin from the first point there is going to lead to this because you're going to say, my life is so messed up and this sin is so pervasive in my soul. I need him to come and do an entire cleaning. I need him to be the Lord of every part of my life. And so the the question here then is, as you're thinking about this passage, think about this. What part of your life are you keeping Jesus out of? What part of your life do you say, Jesus, I'll have you over here, but not over here? Is your faith like the woman of the city, the sinner, the woman of the city? Or is it like the Pharisee where you're keeping Jesus out? Which one of those two? Are you letting Jesus in everywhere like she did? Or are you saying to Jesus, stay over there for now and I'll come get you when I need you? All right, here's the um, the last point. Authentic faith, right? The real faith, this woman's faith, uh, results in overwhelming gratitude and worship. Your forgiveness will always overflow into worship. Imagine for a second that you took out a mortgage for a San Francisco studio apartment. So $10 million, right, for a studio. And uh, a few years into it, you start paying it off. A few years into it, though, you lose your job and the economy crashes and uh, you can't pay it back. And the bank gives you the foreclosure notice. We're going to, if you don't pay this much in a 30 days, we're going to take your house. A friend comes to you. You're talking about your problem and missional family, something like that. A friend from the missional family comes to you and says, so here's what, what I did. I have a big house. I sold my house and I moved into a really small place that's really too small for our family. Then I took the difference and I paid your whole mortgage. Here's the paperwork. And he hands you the paperwork. Uh, he has now absorbed the debt and saved your bacon. It didn't just disappear. He took on that pain so that you didn't have it. And he has now saved your house. How many of you, if that happened, would be cold and composed? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that greatly. Take the paper from him and turn around and walk away. No way. No way that would happen, right? You'd break down, you'd fall apart with joy and gratitude, and you'd spend your your life uh, loving this person, knowing that you could probably never fully pay them back for what they did for you. It would completely change your relationship with this person. That's what worship is, right? And so until you see the real, you know, A, the real depth of your sin, until you you rest uh, your your faith, your whole life in Jesus and are freed from that sin— you won't feel the depth of thanksgiving that this woman did, right? She was forgiven and then it just overflowed. But when you do, your life will be marked by this kind of worship, this stupid worship, right? Like where you just kind of look like an idiot. You see, your debt has been paid. That's the beauty of the gospel. But like I said, your debt doesn't just disappear into thin air. Every time there's a debt that's paid, somebody has to absorb it. And that's what the gospel says. That's what that's where Luke is headed, right? I told you you have to read the rest of the gospel to find out how this woman can be forgiven, right? That's what happens at the cross, right? Jesus heads to the cross where our our debt is, um, is transferred to him and he absorbs the penalty in our place. He sells his house to pay for ours, right? He gives his life for our life. He is covered in darkness to bring us light. And we, his people, should be marked by the kind of worship and adoration and love that this woman shows. Right? Like I said, stupid, over-the-top, unbelievable gratitude for this king 
this wonderful king uh, who has given us real, actual forgiveness that leads to real, actual, lasting peace. Amen? Let's pray. So, Lord, that is the gospel story, and we're so thankful that that's how it works. We're thankful that we don't have to earn our salvation. We're thankful that um, that we don't have to figure out a way to pay our debt, but that you, um, through your work on the cross, have paid that debt for us. Lord, a lot of the times we're not really that grateful to you for who you are. We don't, we're not marked by this kind of worship. And really that's just because we keep forgetting the depth of how wonderful this truth is. So I just pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit to stir within us a sense of how much we've been forgiven, a sense of how wicked and evil and broken we were before you came along. Let us see our sins so that we can see how much we've been forgiven. And let us see, um, uh, just see you for who you are so that we can uh, fall into your arms, that we can uh, weep tears of joy the way that this lady, uh, this, this example of the faith um, did here in Luke chapter 7. Let us be a church that are marked by, or be a church that's filled with these kind of people, just overwhelmed by gratitude for how wonderful you are and how much you love us. Amen.